Hi, I'm Ari Shah, host of the Nothing Ventured podcast. As a CFO that has operated in the startup and scale-up ecosystem for the last decade, and as a founder myself, I found it absolutely essential to learn from those that have come before me. So this podcast is an exploration of the people, the characters, the stories, and the narratives that make the venture ecosystem go round. From emerging fund managers to established VCs, from angel investors to founders, I chat to people that make the tech ecosystem thrive. Please remember to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast because it really helps with our discoverability. And in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the pod. In today's episode, I talk to Theo Priestley. Theo is a globally recognized and sought after futurist and international speaker, author, and authority on the future of business technology and society focusing on the convergence of emerging trends, including Web3, spatial computing, and artificial intelligence. In today's episode, we talked about possible futures, running around with wheels on our legs, uh, writing about the future during the pandemic, and uh, what it means to have a tangled bag of wires in your brain. Let's get straight into it. So, you know, we talked a little bit uh, about what work you do as a futurist, but I'd like to dig into that a little bit further, right? So how much about being a futurist is, is about being right in the absolute versus being directionally correct? Or is that the wrong way of thinking about it? Um, and with the pace of change we're currently experiencing, how do you balance sort of data-driven insights with more speculative or imaginative thinking? Um, I don't think any futurist should claim to be um, absolutely correct because it's not really about that. Again, it's mm -hmm. about speculative and, and possible futures. Um, and there's any myriad of things that can upset that. So anyone saying, um, you know, oh, it will be factually correct that by 2050, we're all going to be running around with wheels on our legs instead, instead of feet, then, you know, that's just absolute nonsense. Um, again, it's about navigating uh, uh, helping people sort of understand what are the possible futures, what are the scenarios, what are the, de the decisions that we need to make to get there, and what are the decisions to avoid as well. I think it's, you know, again, it's it's about avoiding the things that we don't want to see as a future as well as trying to guide it to, mm. towards futures that we do want to see. So dystopia versus utopia, for example. Um, so I think, again, it, trying to nudge people in there, you know, again, it's it's like I'm not the one to know which is the correct future for everybody. I would like to see particular futures come about, but obviously other people, you know, might not, but it's not my job to push people in that direction. My job is to lay, lay it out in front of them and say, choose the one you want and make the decisions that will help you get to that future. And so, so how do you use data versus kind of that speculative imaginative mm. thinking that I was talking about? Because like, I, I think, and maybe this is because I come from kind of a Excel spreadsheety background and I think about kind of <laughs> forecasting in terms of, you know, I, I run through a bunch of assumptions and then I plug in some numbers and I see where those numbers take me. Um, is that the process or is the process actually just sitting back in your armchair, as it were, and, and thinking about those f possible future worlds? Like, how do you balance those two things? If well, it is a... It well, yeah, I mean, it is a combination and a balance of both. I mean, you look at historical trends and you read research papers um, and you also take a temperature check, you know, in today's society and see what, what people actually are thinking and doing. Um, you know, one of the things I always tell people to do is go out into the uh, into a supermarket or a coffee shop and just stand and observe life. Mm. 
because a lot of the technology trends that we see today if you get that you you see a lot of hype from the evangelists and things like that oh this is great blah blah blah. and i'm like yeah but if you stood in front of you know if you stood in a supermarket for an hour you will know for a fact that nobody in that supermarket <laughs> would give a toss about what you're talking about or frankly probably wouldn't even know what you were talking about because they have other things on their mind so i think it's you know for me it's about looking at history and then saying does history apply here so for artificial intelligence, for example, I've had lots of running battles with um, other futurists and other sort of pundits that, that say, oh, it's like the um, the Industrial Revolution and the invention of the motor car versus the horse and cart. And it's like, well, no, it's not because nothing is hit and nothing will hit society, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm -hmm. AI is one of these trends that we have lived with and been very aware of for decades through movies, books, science fiction, comics, you know, all that kind of sort of thing. So we know, and, and you know, we experience it every day, credit scoring applications and, and all, and you know, and Siri and everything else. We know what AI is. Um, so everybody, you know, knows what artificial intelligence is and what it can be capable of. But now it's kind of here, you know, everybody's using it and everybody's aware of, kind of aware of what, what it can do. Um, beforehand, you know, no one knew what a motor car was. And, mm. and obviously it happened very slowly. Here it's just like kind of landed and splat everyone's playing around with it and trying to get an appreciation of it and where it can impact their life. And we haven't had a trend like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Go, no, I, I was going to say, and, and at the moment, I think people are playing at the peripheries mm. uh, and there is still so much and, and the pace of that is, is, is changing very quickly. Right. So that if we think about, if we think about the most obvious one, which is open AI chat GPT, the pace of change and the, you know, the plugins that are being added on a daily basis, the, the, mm. the infrastructure that's being opened up is changing, you know, f far faster than Moore's law. Right. So, so the, the, this is a truly expo exponential kind of growth curve in terms of wh where this stuff is heading and, and kind of tying that in with your coffee shop point is, I, I was talking immediately preceding this podcast. I, I, I did a podcast with Alex uh, Mann, who uh, is a VC at Time Chain, which is a Bitcoin focused uh, VC fund. And we were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, where the world is heading is probably central bank digital coins versus Bitcoin, because it's a simple way of controlling money for, for, for governments. Mm. And we're already sitting in digital currencies. But... And, and this is where the big buck came came up and it's, it ties in exactly with what you were saying uh, around observing the realities on the ground. The, there is a huge amount of apathy and, and a lack of understanding and knowledge. And I think those of us that operate in these ecosystems can almost exacerbate our own understanding and mm -hmm. or desire and or premonitions about what, what might happen. Whereas for your man on the street, like they're worried about can they afford the tin of beans today or, you know, if the Tories remain uh, in government here in the UK, whether they can afford a, a cheese sandwich, which apparently is a luxury mm. nowadays. Um, you know, it, those are the, th you know, without being too glib, those are the problems that are, that are facing most people. Um, and so, you know, to, to your point, how does one therefore, you know, make sure that people are cognizant and understanding and aware of these problems without also overwhelming them with too much sort of technical or even uh dystopian kind of outcomes which which then just scares them off and i think most people if they're scared off or if they if they feel apathy towards something that doesn't impact them today they'll mm. tend to ignore it right 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at what happened with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, for example, mm. everybody, everybody in the technology and LinkedIn and everything else like that, and in our own little echo chamber, we're like, oh, well, that's it. It's the end of Facebook. Everybody's yeah. going to leave. We're going to quit. I'm logging off. That's it. Blah. You know, the, the needle barely moved, and that was because nobody really cared. Mm. One, nobody cared. Two, you're talking about apathy. And three, to so the average person who was using Facebook, they just want to post about their cats or their dogs or the latest meal or their kids. What did they do? That kind of thing. They don't care, you know, and it's that perceived um, convenience versus what what you have to give up to get it. Mm. Um, so you you have the we are trapped in in our own little echo chamber, especially in the in the technology industry. How do you strip it back? Well, it's really funny because um, if you look at some of the uh, you know the the tabloid newspapers in the UK. Um, he's not the AI messiah. He's a very naughty chatbot. <laughs> was uh, was one i think it was either the daily mirror or it was the sun i mean and, and then you've got like ai is going to kill us all kind of thing and you've got the terminator picture and stuff like that and of course this is all great punditry and it's all great for the the masses to read and pick up and of course that completely sours the message that you want to actually give which is you know this is going to disrupt society it's going to cause massive upheaval because of the the job disruption um the governments aren't prepared there's not enough money to go round, um, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. But how do you, you know, how can you carry a message that has that kind of impact mm. to people who are apathetic, who have bigger worries on their plate at this moment in time versus trying to educate them that in 10, 15 years, the world could look very different. It's always going to be somebody else's or some other generation's problem. It's like climate change. Mm. It's too big for people to to grasp and of course the climate change problem was always sold as oh the planet is going to die well it's not civilization is going to end yeah you know planet has survived a giant meteor you know hitting it and wiping out everything on the planet and then uh, you know millions of years later it kind of woke up and went oh, i'm fine thanks very much you know dusted it off you know um Can climate we... change is exactly the same yeah. once it gets rid of the, the the virus that caused it in the first place everything's going to flourish again so yeah, and and the problem is where the virus, right? And I think, I, I think, <laughs> yeah. I, I think this is, and and this this is the reality, right? Like I, I can't remember what the saying is, but I, I was just talking about this over the weekend as well. No, you know, nobody ever looks after you know their six year old self, right? Because because that's in the future. That's something they don't need to worry mm. about it today. Climate change one. I think you and I, you and I both have, if I'm not mistaken, fairly kind of adult ish kids, right? Like mm. teenage to to kind of. Uh, university age <clears throat> and i've been telling my kids for quite some time now that well two things i mean three things i would say one the education system is completely unfitted for purpose uh i read something uh today which i i kind of paraphrased and uh, and said you know the the school and education system sets our kids up to be workers but it doesn't set them up doesn't set them up to to learn how to think right so mm. teach them how to learn it teach them how to work but doesn't teach them how to think um uh, number one secondly like you know university in my mind as an example is is something that all kids currently have to go through just because of the antiquated kind of again um recruitment system but we're seeing more and more people not going to school and of course in the us there was a huge kind of thing about 
not having been to university as as as, as being a badge of honor and you mm. know uh, peter thiel and, and and founders fund obviously uh, had a uh, had a huge kind of movement around that but the third thing and i think the most important thing i've been saying them for a long time to them for a long time but only really kind of came home to roost i guess in november december of last year was the jobs that exist today are not the jobs that they're going to be doing and therefore mm. the skills that they need are going to be very different and they're going to need need to be massively broader in terms of their skill set and and that was kind of my feeling for a long time and then open ai and generative ai happened and i was like oh shit i i i, I kind of was right here um but i actually don't know what that what that world is going to look like right and and to your point it's how do we get people to think today about what the world is going to look like tomorrow so that our kids and their kids can be best adapted to to, to fit to it, right? Mm. Um, again, I think it, it's very difficult to put something into words that will um, shake people from that apathy because the impact is so wide. Mm. You know, whenever you talk about the future, it's always like, well, it's some, again, it's someone else's problem. It's too far out to think about. You know, I, I just want to go on holiday in June for the school holidays, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but but I think trying I think we're, we're potentially aiming the message at the wrong people. Got it. Uh, you know, and it's almost like um, the the Greta Thunbergs of this world is obviously she's she's rattling the saber um, and telling the older generation, look what you did, you know, you burnt our future. But the message is resonating with the younger generation because we're going to, you know, I say we, you know, royal, we we're going to have to take charge and actually, you know, do something about it. Yeah. And I think if we start aiming that message at the younger generations and talking to them and making them aware of these facts, which is, you know, you're five, six, ten, fifteen now, you know, and by the time another decade folds over, you're not going to have the same opportunities that you thought you had mm. or were told in the school system. Um, your healthcare system is not going to be uh, able to cope with with the aging population that didn't look after itself. And you're going to have to think about, well, what, what does that mean for me? Am I going to have to give up my opportunities to look after my parents because they can't afford anything anymore, any private or certainly to top up, you know, because I can't see the pension system existing for much longer. I can't see the national health care system existing in the way it is for much longer. Mm. You know, but of course, it's not us that's going to suffer. It's going to be the future generations. So we have to kind of pivot the message towards these people these mm. you know these younger people and say this is what we think is going to happen and yeah we fucked it up a bit mm. sorry about that but you know it's bigger than climate change in a sense because you're going to really live through it mm. um and that's where we need to aim our message um but we do have to again back to futures and back to painting the pictures of here are the choices that you have to make it's all about educating and what those choices are if you hit people with all the negative stories all the time they're actually going to switch off it's like trump mm -hmm. you know at some point after trump got elected and whatnot it, people started tuning out to what he was doing and that's quite dangerous yeah because it was just like oh he's at it again it's oh, all it's all i could walk down fifth avenue and shoot someone and still get reelected tomorrow or whatever right? exactly yeah and you know and i think with the you know with the message the negative negative messages people have got that kind of that's what makes them apathetic it's like oh this again oh yeah yeah i've heard this before oh well, i'm not going to bother i'm tuning out and they could actually miss a really critical piece of information that they could use to arm themselves for the next five years so we have to stop being so negative that you know there's no you know there's no harm in saying this is bad but at the same time you have to say why it is bad what choices do you have that mm. can turn it around mm. and how do you make it good for yourself and then how do you make it good for your 
generation that comes afterwards so yeah i i, I think i think that makes a lot of sense i think it, it and and to your point it is about providing the avenues uh and the choices and the agency to the to those people to show mm. them how they can affect change rather than just sort of dumping as it were the situation on them and saying well you're gonna have to deal with it good luck right um which i think is all too often what happens um so i i interviewed bronwyn uh williams who co-authored mm. the future starts now with you in in 2020 i think um and as she said uh when describing the book the questions asked and attempted to be answered include everything from eugenics unnatural selection and amortality to the future of work in light of ai ubi and ar and the future of nations economies and civilization at large in our increasingly compromised unequal world um given the pace of change over the last few years right and we're talking <laughs> what pandemic generative ai uh, the collapse of the kind of uh, venture ecosystem do you think uh, we've accelerated our march towards some of the utopian as well as dystopian futures envisaged in the book or are you are you still kind of the jury's as yet out um well i mean nothing dates worse than a book <laughs> I mean, it's always a, a fixed point in time when you have an idea. And then, of course, you know, it was actually written during the pandemic as well, which kind yeah. of sort of put us in a unique position to in, in terms of coping with something that affected the world and then trying to sort of apply that to some of the thinking about where it would go. I mean, and, and we did choose people, you know, as, as far reaching as possible with different opposing views because of the, you know, having such a, a, a broad topic you know the future you can't tackle it with one perspective or two perspectives you have to have multiple and you have to have it from different regions across the world because everybody yeah. has a different perspective and that's absolutely vital especially in this profession um so i mean the the futures that we envisage in the book i think you know i would hope that they would still t stand the test um the litmus test of time you know, a couple of years later um, in terms of where we're going. And we did try to sort of, again, here's here's a dystopian vision, but also here's how to navigate it and make use of what we're, what we're trying to say um, and, and arm you with that agency at the end to sort of make those decisions, whether it's about education, whether it's about space or spatial computing kind of sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, everybody every author who writes a book hopes that people would still want to pick it up and check again and i still you know i hope people still pick it up and and go mm, let's let's thumb through that chapter and actually see if they were right or wrong uh it's definitely something that i do i don't actually go i don't approach it from even from the did they get it right or wrong but like the way i look at it is exactly as you said right these are all possible futures none of them are mm. written right like they're written obviously because they're written in a book but none of them are actually physically written in you know in in, in the kind of karma of the universe in, if, yeah. if i can put it that way and we all have the ability to to i guess influence our own futures and the futures of, of those around us um what what i think for me came across most is we were at such an intersectional point you know, unprecedented, right? In the history of the world, uh, you know, yes, we had the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic, which killed many, many more people, I think, than, than uh, COVID-19 did, but did not have the response or the information or the mm. ability to create vaccines, essentially, you know, in, in, in the space of whatever, 12 months, you know, it, it was a completely different environment. You know, the, the, the world stopped for three to six months um you know right right at the beginning there in march of 2020 and i think 
it kind of felt like almost a, t- a really good point, and I assume this is partly why and how you came about writing writing the book, felt like a really good point to actually stop, pause, and reflect on, okay, what might happen? Because there were so many, I mean, you know, even forgetting about the longer term future, even the immediate future uh, uh, during that pandemic felt very, very uncertain, right? Mm. Would we have a vaccine? Would we be going through numerous lockdowns on a rolling basis? Would we be traveling again uh, uh, in in the same way? Would we be, you know, would we be doing the things that we would do? Would we ever work in an office again, right? These are all, (laughs) and these are questions that are still being debated, I guess, right? So yeah, it feels to me, as someone who's read the book and has, has, has kind of referred referred back to it on and off uh, over the last couple of years, um, if, if it, it, I always look at these things as what are the questions they're asking rather than what are the what are the responses what what are the mm. solutions necessarily that are being provided because I think it's the questions that provoke the thought and and you know everyone has their own lived experience and therefore the questions that you guys ask as authors if I translate them into my own personal circumstances, I can come up with my own kind of uh, answers to, to, to what that future might, might look like. Uh, so all that to say, I think, I think it was a great book. <laughs> I definitely recommend, Thank you. I definitely <laughs> recommend uh, to all my listeners uh, that they do uh, go out and, 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 uh, and buy it. Um, but, you know, as a futurist, you're also always thinking about convergence. So can you share more about what that means to you, what the concept means, and how it influences your predictions and your your thinking about the future, especially around metaverse, Web3, and AI. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a lot of the time I see people reporting on particular trends and they treat it as a, a separate thing, as a silo, mm. and they don't connect dots to other trends and, and how it works. I mean, that's just the way my, my, my head has worked for a number of years. Um, you know, it's just a tangled bag of wires, and in there is a cat. And every so, every so often, the cat drags something out, and there's like three or four wires attached to each other. Um, and and I was I was I'd just come back from Thailand talking about um, banking, and again trying to relate banking towards you know Web three metaverse and um, and AI. And of course, they've all been treated as separate trends. So we've got the DeFi trend, we've got the metaverse trend, which they tried and failed at. And we've now got artificial intelligence seeping into the banking infrastructure in the front, middle, and back office. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a report. There's like 54% or something of of uh, banking functions and processes are are likely to be disrupted or removed as a result of AI. Um, but you know, I see these the the confluence of several trends sort of coming together because if you look at decentralization, for example, and and I wrote a quick blog because I had this sort of thought around how do you tell people what it what what this confluence looks like or this convergence looks like, and I likened it to an orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so if you think about the metaverse or spatial computing as the actual orchestra hall or the concert hall. And in there, you've got the, the the actual orchestra itself. Now, the orchestra is made up of different components. You know, you've got the woodwind section, the brass, the drums, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and that's kind of like Web3 or decentralization, because in a sense, it's all decentralized parts of the orchestra. When it comes together, it works together. Mm. But in, in, you know, in their own right, they are decentralized because they have their own function. They make their own sounds. And that sound is data, um, and, you know. Um, and AI is the or- is the um, conductor, bringing it all together and making sure that the data all works together in the right way, and, and it harmonizes everything. 
Um, and that's how I kind of liken these three particular trends, which is, you know, we have the metaverse and, and spatial computing, which is now going to be like a new paradigm. Um, and it is different layers of reality. So you have virtual reality, augmented reality, um, or extended or mixed, however you want to call it. You've got physical reality, which we live in today. Um, the existing web, which is just flat. Um, you have the metaverse, which can be 2D or 3D. Um, and you can, you as a person should be able to interact in any number of these at the same time. Um, and how does that work? Well, you have to have something that orchestrates these layers, which is AI. Mm. How do you protect your identity and your sovereign data and everything? Well, that's web three, that's three. decentralization. Yeah. So that's how we kind of, that's how I see the makeup of the world coming forward from that. But of course, there's far too many people going, oh, we've got Web3 and DeFi and decentralization and blockchain and crypto, you know, and that's just one thing and never the twain shall meet with the other ones. Mm. So um, I think it's time to start bringing some of these trends together. And even the older ones like cloud and big data and analytics and you stuff said, like that. You said that with so such, a, such a sneer in your voice <laughs> as, as you said cloud. It just felt like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, having lived through some of these older trends as well and, and reporting on them and stuff. And, you know, we, you know, nobody talks about these trends anymore because they're now, at, you know, they're taken as red, they're adopted. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I want to get to that point where we, we, we have, you know, decentralized technologies along with what, everything else that we have and nobody talks about it. You know, I, I, I wrote something today, which is, you know, blockchain is the most boring infrastructure technology it is, but let it be boring and because boring can be successful. But far too many people put blockchain at the top of the marketing material or the, the selling plot point. And it's like saying, yeah, our business runs on Excel. Yes, Excel, here we go. And it's like, nobody cares. What are you giving me that I can use to be useful? Mm. Um, and we've kind of lost that with the modern trends. So I think there's a couple of really interesting things there. I mean, again, as I as I mentioned earlier, our last guest, uh, you know, actually actively suggests that blockchain is a complete scam and just a marketing facade and actually has zero value. I, I think there are almost certainly people that will argue with, with him about that, but I, I can see where he's sort of coming from because in a lot of conversations I've had with with a number of people, both you know within and outside the technology sector, you know the question always arises, this thing that has been built on the blockchain, what was stopping you from building it on traditional Web2 technology or in a, on a, in a traditional database? And often there is no answer, no, no, no real uh, differentiating answer that comes back. But, but the thing that struck me, I think, uh, most when, when, uh, when you were speaking, it's that whole thing about when does a trend become, uh, uh, become normality, right? And it's about mm. when that technology becomes so um uh so inherently part of your day-to-day -day life that you don't notice it anymore right at the moment you've got people shouting about these things exactly as you said you got all the people saying well you know crypto is is, is a future and then ai is a future and something else in the future quantum computing or whatever it might mm. be um but but actually it, it becomes a future when you don't even know that it's happening right and and um, you know, if I think about artificial intelligence, just as a, a very simple example in, you know, the credit card industry, people do not realize that, you know, essentially their credit card fraud systems is essentially a, a pattern matching AI. Uh, mm. Whereas previously it was if your card was used in Canada, flag it as a, as a fraudulent transaction. Literally, that's what, what they used to do back in whatever the 80s or 90s. Right. Um, 
so at the point where these technologies are just second nature in the technology we're already using, I think that's when people, when, when they stop becoming a trend. And I think this is the point. I think people are, are trying to push the narrative of this is a groundbreaking technology as opposed to this technology just exists in everything you do. Mm. That, that's why you need to be aware of it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 especially with something like blockchain. I mean, like you say, I mean, there's lots of web two technologies and databases. Why just, why don't you just use that? But again, the problem is, is that most people put the blockchain in front of the, mm. you know, the reason why, mm. um, um, and then sell that as the, the, the reason that this product or solution yeah, we're, we're selling, exist. We're, we're solving this with blockchain rather than we are solving this. And by yeah. the way, it happens to have been built on the blockchain. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing as well is that blockchain can exist without crypto. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it'd be interesting to see what your get your previous guest said about if they touched upon that, because, you know, there's Hyperledger and there's other blockchain solutions that exist that don't require any form of crypto whatsoever. Because again, it was supposed to be a, a, an infrastructure layer, um, and of course, uh, unfortunately, it just meant that people built, you know, layer one protocols and then launched it with a token that obviously meant that they had some kind of financial incentivization to get involved, which is purely speculative. Yeah. Um, well, that was and, his and that, argument, <laughs> yeah. essentially. Yeah. Well, which is true. I mean, I think there's what is there? Um, who was it? Coin Gecko or whatever is is trying to get rid of ten thousand shit coins at the moment mm. off their exchanges mm. um, because they're just nonsense. Well, there's um, apparently is. There, there's apparently twenty. So, so the way he he put it very simply was there are twenty five thousand uh, other coins on whichever Coinbase or which I can't remember which mm. uh, which <clears> exchange <throat> he mentioned. But he goes number six on that is dogecoin which was literally a joke coin uh and um the top 10 that if you take the market cap of the top 10,000 it doesn't even reach the market cap of bitcoin so they are they are very specifically bitcoin focused um and and yeah his, his like his thesis is that all crypto uh other than bitcoin goes to zero and 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 has no value that i mean <laughs> which which I'm sure there will be people, you know, raising their arms up and would love to debate mm. him on it. But you know that that's the that's the position that that they as a funder taking. Yeah, I mean, you can argue that um, you know even things like Ethereum aren't decentralized. He at also all argued because, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and, and and it makes you know there's a very strong case for that because of the way that one, however, however many um, wallets actually hold. The, the majority of Ethereum, but two, they all sit on AWS and Google mm. infrastructure anyway um, as validator nodes. So, um, you, you know, where's the decentralization aspect of that? And they were all, you know, the other thing as well is that although Bitcoin was obviously decentralized and it was a, a cryptocurrency, you know, the first cryptocurrency, but it was cryptocurrency meant to, you know, free from fiat yeah. and, and give more power to people, you know, all the other projects never really got around to any form of decentralization really mm. and built things that were meant for the masses it was always around the same people who would coalesce on discord groups and jump from one discord to another to follow where the next uh, pump and dump scheme was you know when i was in uh, you know when i was at that conference i basically said you know dap radars tracking 19,000 um decentralized applications and let me think, um, if I do my math, 94% of them um, are split between gambling, high-risk trading, uh, video, well, gaming, um, um, and uh, decentralized exchanges. Mm -hmm. And only 6% are for DeFi. Hmm. 
Now, you would argue that the six percent is actually one of the, is actually the most important use case that would actually mm -hmm. proliferate across mass adoption because it gives people the the ability to, you know, manage their finances, check balances, do money transmission, lend peer to peer lending, etc. Or et even simply participate in the financial markets, right? Yeah, but there's you know six percent. Now, what does that say? It means that there's bugger all use, mm. you know, proper use case. Nobody's built a decentralized Uber, mm. Deliveroo, shopping apps, things that people use. And so decentralization in Web3 has kind of failed in its attempt to be adopted. Mm. So that's still to happen, but I still firmly believe in a lot of the core ideologies um, behind that. Yeah. I, I think, and again, we could probably spend a lot of time talking about <laughs> crypto specifically. Yeah. I I I, uh, I think it's one of these topics where, and, and especially because I, I think me personally, I have a, you know, over the last several years, I've just been sort of observing from the sidelines saying, I don't get it, right? Like mm. that's been my, that's been my premise. Like I don't get it and I don't understand why this coin is being pumped to this level. And I don't understand why people are flocking to it. But, you know, there were lots of people that were and lots of people that are invo involved. A lot of people that made great money. I'm sure there were lots of people that lost money on the other side, because of course, I think a lot of it was about greater fool theory. Um, but you know, switching tack uh, back to kind of AI. So, mm. you know, since we've seen the explosion of generative AI, there've been a lot of hot takes on where we're heading, right? And, and uh, you know, I, I follow you on Twitter and I see a lot of your, uh, your vitriol at the moment going towards everyone that's trying to build the next mental health uh, kind of tool using, using generative AI, which I agree with you would be an absolute crazy thing to do. Um, and you have some very, very strong, strong views, I would say. But what, what do you think the talking heads are getting right? And what are they missing at the moment, just in general? Yeah, so, um, so with generative AI, I mean, we have to understand that these are, you know, advanced algorithms at the, at the heart. I mean, it's large, large language models trained on, um, you know, 820 odd gigabytes scraped from the web. They don't care where they got it from. Same with stability AI and basically taking everything in terms of artwork off the web with no permission, you know, or attribution or understanding of IP protection and copyright. Um, now, humans are very good at anthropomorphizing. You know, uh, we talk to our cats. We believe that they, they can understand us. We give names to our cars. You know, there are people who, who engage in marital and sexual relationships with dolls um, and have them sitting around their house for companionship um and, and people have done it with chatbots as well so they mm. will actively have conversations with chatbots believing replica, that are... i think has come out is yeah. one of the big ones out there at the moment yeah yeah um now these are very sophisticated chatbots but they are not um human in any way they do not uh, convey empathy they mm. do not understand the context of any scenario you pitch to them because they're basically understanding the string of words that you put together in a sentence and then they'll spit back something that's very convincing um the other thing as well is that when they do answer you they you tend to use words and phrases which make them appear human and empathic um and understanding but very so, you inauthentic know, i would say for the most well part. yeah exactly so i mean you know um i remember a, a really bad study about um a chat gpt is more empathic than a doctor and answering questions on a subreddit and it's like, oh, let's let's just dig into this a little bit. And you look at it, and it's like, oh, I stubbed my toe. What's what? What can I do about it? Kind of example. Mm. And of course, the doctors, you know, a doctor's 
you know, got limited time, limited capacity. It. And it's yeah. like, get over it, stick a plaster, come back to me in a couple of days when your toe goes black. <laughs> um, and then, you know, but chat GPT, because it's got all the time in the world. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that you've stubbed your toe. It must have been a very painful experience for you, etc. And of course, immediately someone's going to think, oh, it knows me, it understands mm. me, it knows my pain. <laughs> and and, th and this is the problem is that we kind of latch onto something and say, oh, it knows us. And it doesn't. Mm. Um, and so it's very dangerous, unethical and immoral to push these kind of technologies. And it's very simple in a way artificial intelligence as something that is capable of handling very human centered problems. Yeah. So it's very good at spitting out, you know, ideation, for example, you know, I've got a business idea. Can you help me do some research around it? You know, I want to do some marketing. What's a clever slogan, you know, draw me a picture of something on a beach, licking an ice cream, blah, blah, blah. It can do all of these things and help us kind of like 60, 70% of the way there. Mm. So we can actually understand our thought process and then we take it that extra, we take it the last mile, yeah. but it helps us get off the ground. But giving it things that are very human centered, I think is an absolute dire situation waiting to happen. Yeah, I I, I mean, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I, I, I remember even going back, you know, it's simple, simple as I think, you know, six, seven years ago, I, was, I saw this massive kind of uh, um, emergence of uh, people that were trying to build social media apps to deal with the mental health problems mm -hmm. that had been created by social media apps. And it was this kind of really recursive, <laughs> bizarre. And I'm just sat there going, I, like, do you not see the inherent flaw in kind of what you're doing yeah. here? And I think that it's precisely that, you know, with those that are, are kind of trying to, you know, build in th that, you know, trying to game almost the human condition, um, I mean, the like without the without guardrails in place, that the, the potential yeah. for harm is 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 immense, right? But you know, to your point, it is the sort of tool that can get you seventy percent there. And 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 it's interesting. I so I you know I I've seen a lot of stuff like ah, oh, you can use ChatGPT to become you know to 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 become your podcast researcher and give you questions about your guests and so on and so forth. So I, I ran an experiment and I and I fed it you know our our um uh, our podcast links guest links, um, uh, a bunch of the questions that I've previously asked the guests, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, it came back with the, so, so yeah, I've, I've understood nothing ventured. Here are some of your previous guests. None of them had ever been on the podcast. So completely got that wrong straight off the bat. <laughs> and then the questions <laughs> that it actually comes out with were like really, really crap. <laughs> like very, very <laughs> basic sort of level. What, what I would imagine you know, a university student trying to sound smart, mm. running a podcast, I, I don't want to denigrate university students, but, you know, so, someone who hadn't had much experience trying to just ask what they thought would be a smart question to ask a smart person, but actually it just yeah. comes out as, as a little bit canned and a bit sort of, yeah, it's kind of par for the course. So out of 10 questions, I think I, I might have pinched, you know, half a dozen words from one of those questions to frame something that I've asked you, but, but, but it certainly wouldn't pass muster. Um, you know, I, you couldn't have it like you couldn't have it ask questions. It would not come across as a very human interaction. Mm. Um, so, so where do you? So, so to your point, I think it, it sounds like you think where we are today is that that you know it gives you that seventy. So essentially, it becomes your co-pilot, right? To 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 help you do what you do well better by. Mm -hmm 
by essentially saving you the time from all the kind of administrative tasks that you might have to do in the run-up to whatever you're trying to output. But as we move forward the next three, five, ten years, I mean, do, do you think we are at risk of, you know, I, I'm a CFO, for example, are we at risk of seeing those sort of jobs disappear? Law, uh, you know, legal, uh, even creative industries, copywriting, et cetera, et cetera. You know, is, is that what you th what what you perceive to be the the kind of direction we're traveling in, or is it something different? Yeah. Um, so I do think over the next sort of ten to fifteen years that um, as these tools get more sophisticated, the risk gets higher. Mm. Um, the t the level of task automation and the complex tasks that they can handle will will increase. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not going to see lawyers disappear overnight, for example. But I do think a vast majority of what a lawyer and paralegals yeah. do um, will will be you know severely impacted. And I think it's it's where in that career ladder in various industries do we look at that are actually going to be um, impacted. So I remember doing a talk in Peru of all places. Um, a couple of years ago, um, where they were asking me about AI, and and I I presented it as a career ladder, and I was like, you know, here's someone climbing up the career ladder. You know, they got their first job, data entry, or some really entry level stuff, um, and and then this this rising wave was starting to sort of get higher and higher, and it removes those entry level jobs. So of course, when you leave university, the first thing you do is get an entry level job and yeah. a, you know and an internship and stuff. But of course, now you're fighting against a really sophisticated AI that can do these jobs. Um, the other thing as well is that, you know, and, and Bronwyn and I discussed this on a podcast once, which, which um, you know, there's going to be this fatty glut of middle management that mm. everybody hates, <laughs> which are going to be impacted as well, because no organization is going to pay people, middle managers, a very large salary to babysit AI. Yeah which is essentially what they're going to be reduced to. Mm. So in a sense, that actually completely redoes what a target operating model will look like mm. because you suddenly have the mundane, the very administrative jobs, entry-level jobs, customer service jobs, processing jobs taken away by AI. Um, so what does that mean for your target operating model? Um, what does it mean for management? But what does it mean for the, the impact on society for people who actually that's, their only option for a job and not um, only, in not, terms of white collar. Yeah, but not only that, you then get to the, the next problem. I think about this all the time, right? Like as, as someone who operates in finance, the only way you get to be a CFO is by having the experience of, of, of 20 yep. years of working in industry, operating in businesses, etc. To your point, if those entry level roles aren't there, and, and it's a great example because even... If, if you look in the UK, UK and US, the number of people that are qualifying as accountants is drastically diminished over time because it's no no longer seen as you know a, a great industry to be in for whatever reason. But as as you see more and more automation of those entry level kind of tasks, um, you, you you then don't build up the experience to, to get to that kind of CFO level. So yep. you may see in 15, 20 years, well, okay, the AI is doing all of this stuff, but there's now no one that can do the strategic or the heavy lifting side uh, that that was being done uh, or, you know, where we had a natural kind of uh, flow of people coming up the ladder uh, and through the ranks uh, and, and, and arriving those positions because they're not getting in at the ground floor in the first place and therefore mm -hmm. cannot be trained in those essential skills that take them, you know, up, up, up towards those higher level positions. So that's the thing that I'm still kind of grappling with in my head is, yes, AI 
may well replace those entry-level positions, but then what happens in the future when you need the people that would normally have graduated to those sort of higher-level positions, uh, they're just simply not coming through the ranks anymore. Well, that kind of begs a question about education then. Oh, yeah. And, and, what, and, and then what, what is the role of education in that? Because if, you, if you're training people just to start a career at the bottom, how do you completely turn education on its head to give people the skills to start pretty much near the top, mm. in a sense, or understand how to operate at the top and that strategic level thinking? And of course, that just becomes, well, what are these skills? You know, what are the skills that, you know, that, that we're not teaching them right now? Well, obviously, it's business skills for a start and life yeah. skills, but it's critical thinking. It's foresight, in a way, futurism. How do we predict for the future? It's data-driven insight. It's gut instinct. All those things that we kind of um, force out of children at yeah, school. Yeah, it's all the creativity that we essentially... Exactly, yeah. Down, in, yeah. In a sense, you know, you could, you could take all of these disciplines and actually add them to... Um, the humanities and you would actually get someone who could think at a strategic level and run a business or run, you know, the finance organization of a business or run the data operation of a business, et cetera. And it, it, it would be really interesting to see because the, you know, the humanities have been shit on for years yeah. as being, I was going to uh, say like STEM versus steam versus like, you know, yeah. Uh, and, and actually STEM is the first, you know, if you, if you think about what's happening with, with um, uh, engineering, right? So software development, like mm. uh, already <clears> in <throat> decline because you can literally get the AI. It turns out AI is really good at writing basic software and then you can build from that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so ever since the, the sort of uh, the first, well, the Tony Blair sort of labor government mm. came into power kind of sort of thing, there was a very obvious push to learn digital skills. Mm. Everything was about learning digital skills. And of course that just meant that there was a, you know, even blue collar work, people were leaving their blue collar jobs to learn coding and stuff like that. But of course, all we've done is just set up perfect society to be disrupted by AI because it's going to, you know, the first thing it's going to do is basically take away all the digital skills that we've learned. Mm. Um, so that leaves us in a sense with, well, what's left? What can an AI not do? Well, it can not be human. So what does it, what, what does it mean to be a human? Well, you know, sociology, psychology, all these kind of, sort of jobs. Yeah, yeah. yeah, philosophy, the thinking parts and the creative parts, the arts and the arts, you know, the arts and humanities are going to become probably the strongest defense against levels of automation from AI and robotics that we will have. And all we need to do is actually infuse that into all the specific job sectors that we've had in the past. Um, and actually make them core rather than just this thing. Oh, no, no, you can't make money from thinking as a philosopher, so don't bother studying it. Well, turns out it's possibly that our greatest defense now. Yeah, I'm I'm start, starting to feel not so bad about having read languages at university now. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I mean, and and you know, just just to wrap up on that point, I guess the you know at the moment we're seeing sort of the explosion of prompt engineering as a as a um, uh, as a discipline, I mean, I think that will also get automated away because the mm -hmm. AI will learn how to prompt itself or what, you know, it'll improve its understanding of even basic level prompts. But the people that are being recruited into those sort of roles are people that understand how to think about thinking, how to how to ask the right questions, right, which tend mm. to be philo uh, uh, people with philosophy degrees or, um, you know, who have maybe majored in economics uh, or, or English or literature or whatever, because they understand that human condition. They understand also how to ask the right sort of questions um, to get the right sort of answers. Um, Theo, it's been 
an absolute roller coaster. Love, lovely to have had you on um, uh, on the pod with me today. I'm so thankful uh, for you having joined us. Um, for our audience, where's the best place for them to find you online? I, I know, but you know, where are you on LinkedIn and Twitter? Uh, well, yeah, literally that. Um, I, I'm on Twitter at uh, it's at T P R S T L Y. Um, I'm on LinkedIn at Theo Priestley. You can find me there. I've also got my personal website, which is theopriestley.com. And occasionally, I might venture out and uh, blog on my Medium, which is at Theo. So you'll find me on there. And and of course, do not miss the opportunity to to, to find a conference where Theo is also talking at. Uh, but in the meantime, Theo, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you again for asking.